Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here. If you would be open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, the third chapter. In just a moment, we'll read our text for today as we'll read a few passages and then continue to think about the, the great responsibility and the uh, requirements or the qualifications that the Lord gives to those serving in the office of elder. It is a blessing to be a part of the congregation and, and to be surrounded with people that love God and love each other. And let's make sure uh, that, that we do what we can do to grow. And one of the things that we can do is encourage each other by praying for each other, especially these last 50 days of the year. Keep in mind that we are beginning our 50 days of prayer. And on the brochure that's there also has 50 passages. I'd encourage you to begin either today or tomorrow and read a passage and then be sure and take a prayer card and pray those 10 things three times a day. And also... Uh, something that has proved to be valuable for many of us, and even some families do this together. And I know it's uh, we've been doing it long enough that some families, it's a pretty big part of their tradition now on Thanksgiving Day. Tomorrow is the day that you need to begin making your list of 10 things that you're grateful for. And then on Tuesday, 10 more things, but not duplicating the first 10 things. And by Wednesday before Thanksgiving, you will have created a list of 100 things that you're thankful for. And that's a wonderful thing to share with each other as you're with your family around the Thanksgiving table is to talk about some or all of your 10. And it really is significant for us to go through that because obviously... We don't want to be people that take God and His blessings for granted. And it's pretty neat to stop and to list a hundred things, ten each day, to help us remember uh, who is the one that provides every good gift to us. Our young people are away at a winter series tonight, and we're thankful for them and the opportunities that they have to be involved in such things. A few of our young men are away tonight speaking in a church uh, that's on the other side of Murfreesboro. Uh, If things go as we hope and as they're planned right now, we hope that our young men, uh, various groups of them, will be speaking 12 to 15 times next year in area churches. And so if you know of a church that would like for our young men to come and do their service on a Sunday night especially or any time, let us know about those. We'll be scheduling those uh, just as soon as we know of those places in 2007. And we've asked the young men to volunteer for where they would like to serve in the worship. And we have enough young men volunteered uh, that we'll probably have five, uh, at least five groups going out. And each of them have at least three times that they can do this. And it's wonderful to see young people that love God and want to serve God. And they don't necessarily uh, look just to being the church of tomorrow. They want to be the church today. And if we can help them be the church of today, uh, the church of tomorrow takes care of itself. It's a wonderful opportunity that we have to think about as we're growing, obviously needs grow. That's why we see the need for additional servants in Acts the 6th chapter. The church was growing and multiplying. It makes us wonder what was the growth that was taking place in Ephesus that Paul would write back in 1 Timothy the 3rd chapter speaking to Timothy and telling him these are some things that you need to put in order. And then to see those qualifications that he gives... I know many of us were here this morning, but just in case there's someone that was not here this morning, I'd like for us to read the text again. And then we'll just continue with uh, where we left off this morning with just one quick review of the slide uh, that was the first major part of the lesson this morning. We're beginning in 1 Timothy, the third chapter. If you'd like to read along, it's in your pew Bible on 1054, or it's also slides on the screen here. 
uh, 1 Timothy, the third chapter. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he falls into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach of the snare of the devil. If you would, look with me now to Titus, the first chapter. Paul writes to Titus. Titus is working with the church in Crete. He too is urged to set up a government in the church that has elders. Beginning verse 5, Titus 1 and 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless... The husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, if you will, go to 1 Peter the 5th chapter and let's read four verses there. Again, I remind you, 1 Peter the 4th chapter is not usually considered as a part of the qualifications as much as it's just a wonderful text to have as a backdrop to keep in mind these are some glimpses of principles of what a man of God would be if he's going to serve in the office of elder. Peter as an elder writes, 1 Peter the 5th chapter and verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not of dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory which does not fade away. Remember this morning, we said instead of studying this just in order out of the verses, we would take what is really about 25 qualifications and we'd break them into four major groups. This morning, we looked at the character of a man that would be qualified to be an elder. And we saw that this man's character, according to these texts we've just read, that he would be blameless, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, gentle, lover of what is good, just, holy, and self-controlled. But also a part of his character is things that that he would abstain from, things that he would refrain from. And let's think about these that we've just read in this text as we consider, consider things that he avoids. First thing that we see in 1 Timothy, the third chapter, it's mentioned also in Titus, but the third chapter in verse 3 is not given to wine. And it's interesting here, the, the word for wine is not just the drink itself, but it literally has to do with not staying near the wine. In other words, the application seems to be, by the choice of Paul's selection of the word here, is he's not only just saying, stay away from wine, 
But he's saying, stay away from that kind of atmosphere. Stay away from those kinds of people. Now, it's easy to understand that from a biblical principle. When we think about Proverbs, the 31st chapter, in Proverbs, the 31st chapter, the king, Lemuel, was being taught by his mother what leaders do and what they don't do as godly leaders. Now, this particular leader was going to be a leader as a king over a land. But yet the principle is the same as she tells him why he does not need to drink wine. I'm going to read verse 4 and 5. And I'm sorry, we don't have a screen for this. But Proverbs 31, listen to verse 4 and 5. This is a mother teaching her son. She says, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princesses intoxicating drink. And here's why. Lest they drink and forget the law... And pervert the justice of all the afflicted. And that same principle is given over to the leaders here when he says that a man of God that's going to be a leader in the church, he doesn't need to be around the alcohol. Why would that be? How many times have we seen individuals that they violated God's will in intoxication, not only by intoxication alone, but I'm saying they've done other things. They have violated other aspects of the will of God because of intoxication. How many times have people not dealt justly? You see, this mother was teaching her son that was going to be a king. She taught him, you're just not going to have the compassion to deal justly and fairly with people in poverty if you have that kind of influence in your life. Now, there's a principle that's even broader than that that I think all of us ought to remember as Christians, but especially those that are leaders. We do not need to bring anything into our life that's going to empower our life in ways to pull us away from God. We just cannot bring things into our life that's going to be a stumbling block for us to violate the law of God. For us to not have compassion toward others. And several of these that are mentioned in this list of things not to do. They're things that that empower our life to do wrong. And so he's saying, these are the things, not only do I not want you to do them, I don't want you to stand near them. Don't get to the edge and see how close you can go. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul says he won't be brought under the power of any of these things. Now, let's think also about not being violent. Some of the translations would say not a striker. It's the idea of someone that, that always uh, has maybe a hot temper, but it's the idea that I've got to strike back. You know, oftentimes we are treated unfairly. Oftentimes in the area of leadership and ones that need to do the work of the Lord. And keep in mind, a leader ought to be more spiritually mature. So naturally they're going to be working oftentimes with people that are less mature. So if you think about that scenario, and this is not to put anyone down, but obviously we would think about those being less mature, making mistakes, and the question is going to be, how's the elder going to handle it when someone makes a mistake that offends them or hurts them? Is he going to be one that strikes back? Or is he going to be one that's more peaceful? And he thinks before he acts and he turns the other cheek and he realizes this is an opportunity to help someone grow, not an opportunity to seek vengeance. The third thing we see that not greedy for money. Now, what is interesting to me is that in all three texts that we read, even over in 1 Peter 5, this is made mention. 
That tells me that it was probably a pretty great struggle even in their day and time. You know, it's easy for me to say that in America this is one we struggle with, and that is materialism. But you know, there must have been a lot of societies that have struggled with materialism. The idea that I just want a little more. I just really need a little more. Now what happens when a man puts his eyes upon possessions and upon money instead upon the will of God and priorities are out of order? Well, this is for certain. Paul says all three times, both times, and then Peter says it also. And that is, don't let that man serve in the office of an elder. Friends, there's too much that needs to be done in the work of the kingdom that simply will not be accomplished if someone has their heart set on possessions. Now, we realize that men that serve in the office of elder, perhaps they're still working for a living and, and they have to be committed to providing for their family or the scriptures teach us in Timothy that they'd be worse than an infidel. And so what's the challenge? The challenge is finding that balance and making sure that it is God that's ruling our life and not financial and material uh, possessions. And notice, as we skip one, we go to covetousness. Not being covetous. That too is very closely linked to the greediness. Covetousness is a greed that literally will lead us to do other wrongs. And he's saying, you can't have a man in office that's going to do that. He's going to hurt the work of the church and the production that goes on. Friends, I hate, and if you'll notice, I hardly, you won't hear very oftentimes from my mouth speak about volunteers. I think when we come to work for the Lord that we're servants. It's not this casual, well, if I can show up tomorrow, I'll volunteer to help the church in this. Friends, I don't know of a congregation that needs volunteers because they're not really reliable. What the church needs is kingdom workers. Workers that say, I'll be a part of that ministry and you can count on me. I may have to take a vacation day every now and then to be able to do it. I may have to make some sacrifices and put some hobbies that I have on hold. I may have to rearrange a lot of things, but I can tell you this. I work in the Lord's kingdom and you can count on me being there when I said I'd be there. Now, if someone is covetous, if someone has a love for money, you can rest assured they never get around to that kind of commitment. We need members of the church that don't look at this as a volunteer work. We need elders that don't look at this as a volunteer work. And I'm thankful we have those. But as we consider other men, we need to find out what is the priorities, what's the level of commitment, because... By no stretch are we looking for someone to volunteer. Now notice the one we skipped over there was not quarrelsome. It is the idea of someone that's peaceful. We have made several references today of not being one that strikes back. How many of us love, and and I'm not talking about lip service. I'm talking about from the depths of our being. We love being a part of a congregation that is united and that we're peaceful. We love each other. We have unity. Friends, you remember this morning in the introduction, we talked about the fact that a congregation never goes long-term in a, in a direction different from our elders. That's why it's so important that we make sure that if a person is prone to be one that strikes back, if a person is prone to being one that's quarrelsome, enjoys arguing with other people, friends, I'm not against that person in the sense, let's cast them off to the side. We need to help them grow. We need to help them mature. But we don't need them and the office of an elder, because we need to make sure that our leaders are setting that example, as First Peter 5 teaches us that they do. Notice also, 
Next to the last one on the screen here, it says not self-willed. I need to realize this as a man that is in a home, and I need to realize this as, as uh, we think about an elder in the church. So many times when individuals think about the leaders, they think about the head of the home. I'm husband and I'm head of the home. That never once means that we get to do things the way we want to do them because we're head of the home. Do you realize elders here never make a decision because it's the way they want to do it? Leaders have to make decisions because and for what is best for the church. If you're a godly husband... Don't ever make a decision in your family because it's what you want. Make a decision what is best to lead your family to heaven. A man that is self-willed would go into the office campaigning for his desires. And probably if he's self-willed, those desires are not what is best for the work of the Lord and for the church. And so it is humility is what is needed, not someone that's self-willed. And notice, not quick-tempered. And, and you remember James teaches us that we need to be slow to wrath, but now we need to be quick to listen. We need to be slow to speak. You see, those are things that we need to ask ourselves as we think about who is it that, that we want to serve as an elder. Is it someone that's willing to listen, but it's also real slow to go to anger? Let's go to another slide and let's see another category. We've seen the character. We've seen things that need to be avoided. But now also notice the bishop's family. As we think about the elder's family, we see four major uh, principles that are taught here in the text. Notice the first one. He must be the husband of one wife. That tells us one thing. He needs to be married. That tells us that he only needs to have one wife. But also, by the reading, even in the original Greek, it tells us that he needs to be faithful to that wife. The idea here in the text is a one-woman man. In other words, not only is he married, not only is he married with only one wife, but he's married with only one wife and he is faithful to that wife. Why is this so important? Well, as we consider the next qualification, we see that it's important as it relates to the wife, and then in a moment we'll see even an explanation for that. But look, if you were, still have your Bible, 1 Timothy 3. Look at verse 11, where he says, and, and it's almost on that slide, if you don't have your Bible open there, the second statement. But in 1 Timothy 3 and 11, as you're reading through the qualification of the deacons, he has a qualification here about the wives, and it's, it's accepted by almost anyone that he's speaking about the wives of deacons as well as the wives of elders. And so here's what he says about the wives. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, notice this. I've heard individuals say before, and it's a process, it's a thinking process, and so I, I'm not trying to put anyone down with this, but, but it's a thought process where someone says, you know, I really think they would make a tremendous elder, but you know, their wife isn't really qualified. Well, he's not qualified then. Keep in mind, we're not picking nine out of ten of these qualifications and then in our mind saying, okay, we could count that one off, we could count that one off. These are the qualifications God gives and says that a man must fulfill these things. And someone says, I just don't think that's fair. Friends, we're not writing the law here. This is the law of Christ and His covenant. And it's this simple. You could have a man that fulfills every one of the qualifications except his wife fulfilling these. 
and he would not be qualified. What is it that the wife must be? It's the thing that God would ask of any Christian wife. But notice, here we see that she is to be reverent. That's the idea of honorable. It's translated also in the Scriptures, honest. Notice also that she is to not be a slanderer. You know, in the church, we are in the people business. And you know, anytime you work with people, you know, every family has problems. They're either in the middle of them now or they've had problems in the past or they'll have them in the future. There's no exception to that. Every individual has problems. When you serve in leadership, you know about a lot of people's problems. A good elder knows how to keep confidentiality. And an elder's wife also knows how to keep the confidentiality. Slander is not a weapon that a church can afford out of the mouths of their leaders or of their leaders' wives. How many churches have been hurt because an elder or deacon's wife speaks out of turn with something that an individual has struggled with or it pains that family only to find out that someone has used the very thing that was already painful as a weapon against them. Friends, that's just not the heart of a leader. And it's definitely not the practice of a leader. And so let's make sure that we think about who is it that can be a family that can love souls enough to serve them when they're hurting not be slanderous against them. Also, we notice two other things that he says about the wife's temperance, and we've talked already about that a good bit today. It's that idea of vigilance and watchfulness and etc. But then also notice, faithful in all things. Isn't it interesting the way the last description that he gives there, the qualification for the wives, it's just a broad stroke. He, says, he sums it up in, in a beautiful but simple fashion. Faithful in all things. Look at the wife in the home. She's faithful. Look at the wife in the workplace. She's faithful to God. Look at her in the community. She's faithful to God. Look at her in her church. She's faithful to God. Look at her in her personal devotion. She's faithful to God. It's that simple. The woman that is going to be the wife of an elder or a deacon has to be faithful to God or they're not qualified. Now notice as we look in the third chapter in verse 4, we see another one. It's the third one listed on your screen here, the bishop's family. He rules his house well and has his children in submission. Now what's beautiful it, with this particular qualification, he gives us an explanation of how this is going to fall into the play of the life of an elder. Not, not nearly all of the qualifications have this kind of explanation, but this is interesting. So we say, well, why is it so important to see how this man has led his home? Look at verse 5 again. This is the third chapter in verse 5. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, God says, I want to tell you why... You need to see how effective he was in leading his children. Keep in mind, his children had to be submissive. In other words, if children will not follow that father, what makes us believe that anyone else's children would follow that father? What makes us believe that anyone else would follow that father if the own people that live with him don't follow him? This is a huge point. 
If a man has not been successful in getting his own family to lead the Christian life, he's not going to be successful in helping other families lead the Christian life. Now, if you'll drop back from the details of that, we get a tremendous glimpse of what God expects elders to do. I vision in my mind a a father, and he's got his own children in his hand. Now, this is symbolism, okay? He has his own children, hands, and, and they're holding hands, and spiritually they're walking to heaven. And God is looking down and He's seeing this family walking towards heaven. And He sees this father and this mother successful in rearing their children so that they're going toward heaven. And God says, that's it. That's the kind of man that I want to lead my family. Because I want that kind of leader in my family so that He can put a few other hands in His hands. And so together they can walk on their way to heaven together. That's the glimpse of an elder that I get as I read this passage. Friends, we're here. And when you and I breathe our last breath, we want to be with God. What is it a man can do that can help us get there? According to God's plan, we need godly elders to help us get there. To look over our soul, to care for us, to work along with us. Now notice, and, and we've got to, to move on quickly. Let's make some bullet points. Notice that last one there. Having faithful children not accused of dissipation and insubordination. And that goes to the point that they're faithful children. They're old enough to have chosen whether or not they want to live the Christian life. They made the ch- decision to live the Christian life. And they've lived it long enough that they've proven that this is the decision that they're making. Notice a deacon doesn't have to have faithful children. In other words, that tells us that a deacon could be much younger than, than an elder might be. Notice also as we see this last series or this last category of qualification, it's a bishop's maturity. A bishop has to be a Christian long enough that he's able to be a teacher, apt to teach. Not only does he have the experience in teaching, but he has the ability to continue teaching. In other words, he's a man that's been taught and he's ready to teach. He's a man that the last one on the slide there to exhort and convict those who are contradict, in other words, those that are false teachers, who isn't in the church that by God's plan is to be either the front line or at least among the front line. What we see in the scriptures is that the front line of defense for the church in fighting false teachers would be the elders and the preachers. Now, of course, any of us have a responsibility to fight false teachers, but when we just look at the design of the church, that's the front line. And so if a man doesn't know the Scriptures enough to teach them, if he doesn't know the Scriptures enough to be able to sit down and, and to try to, notice, exhort, that's called to the side of Christ. Hey, you're believing something false there. Why don't you come to the side of Christ? Convict. Let me show you why that's wrong. Let's open the Scriptures. That's the mindset and the qualifications that God gives here. But notice also he says, not a novice. And you look at that in the third chapter, verse 6 of 1 Timothy. Again, this is another one where we have an explanation of why we shouldn't be a novice. He says, uh, why an elder shouldn't be a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall in the same condemnation as the devil. We're putting a man in a position for spiritual jeopardy. When we give an immature Christian the heavy responsibility of an elder. It's an open temptation of pride. He's not ready to accept that much responsibility, the power and the authority that comes along with it. 
Now, of all the analogies Paul could have compared it to, it could not have been worse. He says he's going to fall. And he doesn't mention another man. He says he's going to fall like Satan fell. But then notice... This last one is they must have a good testimony among those who are outside. In the third chapter in verse 7, we see that because, again, we have the analogy at the end of verse 7, lest he fall in the reproach and the snare of the devil. There's a church here in Middle Tennessee that's getting off the ground, and they are hoping soon to be able to appoint elders. I'm not suggesting to you that this is the way we ought to do it. I'm simply letting you think about it from the angle they're thinking about it. Because of this particular qualification, before they appoint individuals as elders, they're going to take the names that are selected and they're going to run them in the papers, the newspapers, all in the area. And they're going to ask those that are outside the church the reputation that these individuals have. And if they have a good reputation, that will stand to pass the test of this particular qualification. I'm not suggesting to you that it has to be done like that, but the fact is true. If a man's going to serve in the office of an elder, he has to have a good reputation by those outside the church. In other words, there would be nothing wrong with finding out in the workplace, what is this man thought of? Do people recognize him as a Christian and a man that stands for integrity and morality? Is he kind and gentle? Is he dignified? You see, if that's not the report from his neighbors, from his co-workers, and from people that, that he knows as friends and peers outside the church, the man's not qualified to be an elder. High standards, but isn't it interesting that a lot of these standards are standards that's given to all of us as Christians? Let's make sure that this week, that we spend time, a lot of time in prayer about this particular place that we are in the life of a congregation. It's time for us to to make some serious suggestions and and to make a move forward that that will be a, a great achievement in the sense that God's plan is continually followed in this place. If you're not a child of God, can you give one good reason why? There is no reason that's good as to why you're not a child of God. If you've never been baptized in Christ for the mission of sins, or if you have and fallen away, it's a great time to come back. If we can help you in any way,